We also use the TTC to actually elevate environmental, social, and government standards as we build diverse, sustainable, and secure supply chains. Ultimately, what we're about, if we do things right, is creating a race to the top, not a race to the bottom. What we can do is uh, we can exchange information. We can discuss things that we disagree on. We can align point of view, and we can, I think very importantly, we can be specific. The U.S. and Europe have entered a new trade era under Biden's administration. A new cooperation agenda is being developed to tackle today's challenges, such as climate change and emerging technology, focusing on consumer protection, competition, digital issues and energy. Despite the positive shift, trade rules are still used by some to influence domestic policies, often weakening regulations. For the citizens, this means that trade rules affect the EU's efforts to protect consumers in the digital market and combat climate change. Today, on the Bull Europe podcast, how to prevent trade rules from creating barriers to regulatory action. Is the new transatlantic cooperation agenda enough? Hi, my name is Gail Rago, and I'm your host for this episode of the Bold Europe podcast. To uncover today's complex topic, our guests are Callie Schrader and Calvin Manduna. Callie Schrader is Senior Counsel and Global Privacy Counsel at EPIC, the Electronic Privacy Information Center in Washington, D.C. Calvin Manduna is Senior Trade Policy Analyst at IATP, or the Institute for Agriculture and Trade Policy, also based in Washington, D.C. They have both visited Brussels, invited by the Transatlantic Consumer Dialogue, a forum for transatlantic discussions on intellectual rights, internet society and food between and among consumer organizations in the U.S. and the EU. Callie, Calvin, welcome. Thank you for having us. Uh, thank you, Gail. Pleasure to be here. Let's kick off this conversation by describing the current state of the trade relationship between the European Union and the United States. As we said in our introduction, there has been a shift under President Biden. The United States is revising its trade policy to respond more effectively to the challenges of the 21st century. In order to foster transatlantic trade and investment cooperation in issues such as climate change and emerging technologies, a forum was established the so-called US-EU Trade and Technology Council. Calvin, could you provide us with an overview of the goals for this forum? And also, why is the US-EU Trade and Technology Council a positive shift? The TTC is a forum for the US and the EU to coordinate and uh, cooperate on dialogue on issues of trade and economic development and uh, the more relevant issues being around climate, trade and more recently technology issues. So it's a dialogue that spans a number of areas, including human rights. And of course, more recently, a pivot towards the Indo-Pacific in the US. So issues of economic coercion in China are increasingly part of those discussions. So the US and Europe are entering a new trade era in which issues such as climate and technology are increasingly interconnected with trade. Callie, could you provide us with some concrete examples of initiatives that have resulted from this collaboration. 
This collaboration has resulted in a few concrete initiatives. We've seen the Biden administration setting forth clear directives on climate. There's clear indication that they want to re-enter some of the U.S.'s commitments when it comes to global climate protection. The problem that we're seeing in many cases is that either these discussions don't result in something tangible or they are captured in a way by U.S. corporations or tech interests, and there's not the same perspective given to consumer rights, to human rights, to civil liberties, and that causes some problems when it comes to making sure that these are balanced discussions and result in good and clear trade policies. So follow-up question on that. How do these initiatives contribute to consumer protection and climate action? Kelly? Some of the contributions have resulted in pledges for certain levels of climate protection activity to take place over time frames. So there's been renewed review of climate initiatives and climate commitments in different agencies within the U.S. Those There's been attempts to enforce that on a private company level as well. So certifications for companies that meet certain thresholds down the line. For civil liberties, I've seen fewer commitments on the trade level. There's been much discussion about individual rights and individual dignity. There's been discussion about privacy issues, but these haven't resulted in some of the concrete results we would like to see, such as a federal privacy law. So there continues to be discussion in these areas, but we look forward to there being more certainty in the results. Thanks for that. So despite the positive change, we can still see a pattern where trade rules are used to influence domestic policies, which often weakens regulations that safeguard consumers. As a question to both of you, in your respective fields, could you elaborate on some specific examples where trade rules have been invoked to influence policies in the EU or the US, leading to a negative impact on citizens' lives? Calvin, let's start with you. Well, in our case, uh, Gail, we focus on agriculture and food. And the trade rules, I can say, affect us in both directions. In some cases, we feel they influence negatively in terms of the production systems that we have that are very much focused on market access and trying to produce more and more and incentivizing this type of industrial agriculture, which we feel is very negative for the climate. So in that sense, we feel the trade incentivizing this uh, type of arrangements and type of food system. So we have a problem of oversupply, which in turn leads us to problems of food waste and also encouraging us to produce certain types of food that we feel present a challenge in terms of nutrition. So we are trying as an organization with our allies to counter this and, and encourage a shift in thinking both in the trade arena And also on the production side of things uh, where we try to put climate and issues of nutrition and and, and in terms of food safety as well uh, at the center of the agenda and as the foundation for trade and for agriculture system. What about you, Kelly? So one clear example I can think of is in past trade discussions, pharmaceutical companies had a huge influence in discussion about protection of product and protection of uh, patents on those products specifically. And that resulted in a trade agreement that then influenced U.S. policy because the trade agreement was binding on U.S. laws. The U.S. laws then had to change and up the patent protection term to 20 years as opposed to, I believe it was 17 or 18 years previously. And we've seen attempts to do similar things in current discussions. So big tech companies like Meta or Google 
are able to say in these discussions what their goals are and and claim business protections that then would affect any prospective privacy or consumer protection laws that happen in the U.S., So this is a a current problem as well as one we've seen historically. And the TTC is interesting because it is more transparent than what we've seen previously in that you're able to see a little more clearly who is engaging in the discussion, but there still isn't the kind of open invitation or transparency that we would like to see in the engagement since these trade policies are essentially a way to form and structure new laws. Callie and Calvin, both of you have just attended a discussion between nonprofit organizations, decision makers, and academics about the impact of trade rules on the ability of governments to regulate such issues. What is the example of trade pressure on domestic rulemaking that struck you the most? Calvin? Well, Gail, I think probably the more topical example is the Inflation Reduction Act in the U.S., and the reaction here in the EU towards that uh, piece of legislation. This was probably the most far-reaching piece of legislation dealing with climate issues in the US uh, in recent memory, together with other pieces of legislation, the CHIPS Act and so on, that deal with other aspects. Where our interest in the US, at least for the government, is on uh, how to incentivize and finance the green transition how to also onshore a lot of activities like manufacturing, part of de-risking from our reliance on China and to incentivize certain supply chains. But of course, this has raised a lot of concerns from a trade perspective from the European Union and other countries that this will lead to a flight of their companies in in, in areas like uh, electric vehicles, battery manufacturing, to relocate to the U.S. in pursuit of those uh, incentives that are being offered by the U.S. Some have accused the U.S. of disguised protectionism with these buy local, produce local provisions, local content requirements. So there's a clear tension here between, which and you find it as well on this side of the Atlantic, uh, with the EU's own provisions on carbon and its own Green Deal. We are trying to do things in the domestic arena. We're providing subsidies and so on, which our trade partners perceive as protectionism or is inimical to their trade interests. So that's probably one good example I can see in recent times. Kelly? So my specific work focus is on privacy issues typically. So the clearest example I've seen in my work is with the APEC agreement, There was a lot of discussion about data transfers as opposed to data transfers that function under GDPR agreements. Because of that, it's affected some of the local policies when it comes to data protection and security and also uses of personal data at a local level within the U.S., The conflict that we're seeing now is because we have GDPR arrangements, we also have APEC arrangements, and we also have developing technologies, and as Calvin mentioned, frequent references to China and China's use of of data. These conflicting approaches to data protection tend to result in consistencies within the U.S. in how data is treated and lack of cohesion when looking to future policy and future stances on that. So we're missing a unified vision for how to move forward in that space. Before we move on with the interview, let's recall some key concepts to understand clearly why the single market is a cornerstone of European integration. So far, We have learned that the EU-US Trade and Technology Council 
is a platform that has resulted from the positive shift in transatlantic trade relations. It allows the US and the EU to dialogue and collaborate on crucial topics in a transparent forum. However, these discussions have yet to lead to tangible trade policies, especially regarding consumer and human rights. On top of this, big companies such as Meta or Google can still claim business protections that weigh against prospective consumer protection laws. We'll be looking now at the future and possible solutions to make sure that trade rules don't create barriers to regulatory action. Callie, considering the importance of protecting consumers in the digital market and taking action against climate change, what collaborative efforts or strategies can be adopted by the EU and the US to address these challenges effectively? For both the EU and the US, I think it's most important to make sure that in our conversations with one another, we maintain a wide perspective. And that means both listening to both sides of the conversation from the U.S. perspective, we need to make sure we're really considering what we hear from the EU side. The EU side needs to consider the concerns coming from the U.S., but it also applies to who's in the room for these conversations. As Calvin mentioned, there's been huge focus on just the technical or big tech aspects of these agreements and privacy and technology and human rights concerns don't stay in that space. So in order to make sure we have a holistic perspective when we put together these trade agreements that affect millions of people's lives and also affect millions of industries and the way that we regulate those industries, we have to make sure we're bringing in experts in agriculture and economists and technologists and human rights experts and ethicists Limiting it to people with certain expertise means that we only get part of the conversation and we're only able to consider perspectives we're already used to. These are wide-reaching impacts. So even if the trade agreements are between the U.S. and the EU, the effects don't stay between the U.S. and the EU. We are affecting the rest of the world with the choices that we make here. And we have to keep all of that in mind as we move forward. So I would really encourage everyone involved to proactively seek out perspectives that are not your own in these conversations rather than waiting for them to hear about these discussions and try to break in on their own. I really like that. That's great advice. Calvin, in this context, how can the EU and the US develop stronger transatlantic cooperation? Well, Gail, a starting point for me, uh, I was a little disappointed on my trip here that in the TTC itself, I feel, and also in the US's various trade negotiations, the issue of digital has uh, begun to suck the oxygen out of the room and really dominate conversations, which is understandable. There's, of course, a big interest, commercial interest, and also from consumers and regulators. But uh, we'd also like to argue that uh, we don't want to lose focus or lose the prioritization of issues related to climate. Agriculture is one-third of emissions so for us, it has to be the main conversation in addition to issues like uh, digital. And I feel there is a platform for cooperation between DG Agriculture and the U.S. Department of Agriculture. But I, I feel the level of activity there is lagging behind what is happening in areas like digital. And that's of concern to us. We wanted, Gail, to have more discussions around the EU farm to fork we want to look for what are the innovations on this side of the Atlantic 
that we can mutually exchange and push forward. And on our side as well, with our farm bill and the things that we are doing on conservation and so on, and see what's the best pathway forward. Because we do have different paths that we are trying to pursue and trying to arrive at sustainable agriculture and food systems. So this for us is where we'd like to see this framing around uh, prioritizing sustainable agriculture, sustainable regenerative agroecology issues in the dialogue become more prominent. I think that's a really helpful reflection to think about with everything being taken over, as you said, when we're talking about technology and digital and privacy to make sure that the conversation around other very relevant aspects around climate are not forgotten. As a question to you both again, what would the EU and US decision makers need to change to prevent trade rules from having a negative influence on their willingness to better protect consumers? Both sides, we have to be willing to take a dramatic shift from our previous approaches towards agriculture. This includes at the World Trade Organization, where we see the negotiations on agriculture are stalled in the lead up to the next ministerial conference, which takes place early next year. It's very discouraging to see very little movement and both sides uh, must share the blame in being entrenched in uh, their existing positions. Yet as civil society, as consumers, we continue to advocate for more sustainable agriculture, for different approaches to the production, a shift away from this high fertilizer, high pesticide industrial agriculture with oversupply, I can't keep saying enough about it. So that is certainly an area of major concern for us. The other areas we would want to see the type of repurposing some of these incentives that we currently give to the agriculture producers towards more sustainable and better nutrition options uh, in terms of products that we, we, if you look in the US, we put a lot of money into cereals, but we, I think we need to really look at this and see what is more healthy. Not to say those are not, you know, healthy foods, but what other, what can we shift the diet towards through these incentives that we currently provide? The last point, Gail, I think you touched on the question of digital and trade and this type of protections for consumers and we have been looking in our visit here and in discussion with, with consumers, consumer advocates here on what is the impact of digital on agriculture. And one example we see with concern is where, for example, companies are now coming up with innovations to print food, meat produced in a laboratory. And for us, these are the type of areas where regulations must be swift and we need to be in front of these kind of developments from a safety perspective, from a nutrition perspective to protect consumers. It's really interesting to see how, as usual, there's so much intersection between technology and everything else, including food and climate. Callie, what about you? From a broad perspective, I think the people involved in these trade discussions tend to be so used to speaking within the structure of policy and the structure and formality of government relations and industry relations that they can lose perspective very easily. So my encouragement in these conversations is to encourage a mindset shift. When we're having these conversations, we need to make sure that we are striving to understand the implications of everything we're doing, not just for a business's bottom line or for a government's security concerns or reputational concerns, but for how they impact people on both sides and 
in the rest of the world, there also needs to be some level of humility in admitting when we don't know something and seeking out experts who can then explain it to us. In a lot of the conversations I've been part of and I've seen, people are very unwilling to admit when they don't have an answer. And I think we need to become much more comfortable with admitting that because trying to bluster our way through something we don't understand often results in very bad and harmful policy. So we need to make sure that we're bringing in experts in areas we don't understand. We need to make sure we actually listen to them and we ask the questions we need to. And in general, people need to remember that these trade discussions are answerable to people. At the end of all of this, these are going to impact individual people that don't get to take part in these discussions and are trusting those there to represent their interests and to consider their interests. And finally, I really think that transparency needs to be a much bigger part of these conversations. There's historically been a real problem in people not knowing these discussions are even taking place in large part. And then once that's revealed, nobody knows who's involved. Nobody knows how those people got invited to participate. Nobody knows how to make their own voice heard in the setting. And so I think we need to be much more proactive in trying to open that up to other people's views so that we can be sure we're accurately reflecting what we need to reflect in those discussions. That actually takes us very nicely to our last question, which is, I'd like to ask in your opinion, what role you think public awareness and citizen engagement can play in influencing policymakers to prioritize consumer protection in the digital market and to take action against climate change? In other words, how can citizens and civil society organizations contribute to shaping trade policies. Callie? So working for an advocacy group, I clearly have a particular perspective here, but I still have a possibly naive belief that people really can influence the way that these things function. And frequently, one of the biggest challenges we come up against is making people educated and aware of all that's happening without allowing them to become hopeless as a result of that knowledge or helpless. I think making sure that people are aware of what's going around them and empowered with that knowledge has to be accompanied by encouragement that their knowledge matters and that there's still choices at the end of it. Many policy and governmental and even industry choices get made because of pressure. And you get pressure when multiple people come together and decide what they want for themselves in these settings. So while it may be there may be very little power or bargaining power from an individual, if that individual bands together with many more people, there's real influence and impact there. That's the role that I see for citizens and for civil society is making sure that we are staying aware and staying active and staying energized in these spaces so that we don't give up when things look challenging. And I do think that government and industry responds to that. Industry does not want to lose all of their customers. They don't want to make everyone angry and lose business to some competitor. Governments do have genuine fear about whether they'll be reelected, whether they'll be reinstated. They're, if there's substantial pressure in certain areas, they do respond to that at some point. So from my perspective, that's the real role for citizens and civil society. Yeah, I completely agree. I've been in civil society for a long time and there can be a lot of hopelessness. And sometimes it's really important to remember inside and out that, well, first of all, there's no point in losing hope and that there are always choices and that we hold power. What about you, Calvin? I certainly echo um, what Callie has said uh, about 
the challenges of influencing policy due to the pressure from corporates. Citizens are key to shaping policy directions. There's no doubt about that, especially now with these emerging issues of climate and AI and digital, where we think sometimes the corporates and the science may become a bit exuberant in chasing innovation, that the ethics of it I think that has to come from citizens' pressure of what we can tolerate to safeguard not only us, our children and things like that. But as she said, in the U.S., shaping that policy is extremely challenging because we are dealing with very, very well-oiled, well-resourced lobbies from corporate, both at federal level and at the state level. And this challenge of a revolving door between the regulators, the legislatures and these big corporates is a big problem for us in terms of shifting the thinking. But that notwithstanding, there are victories being won, which uh, shows that at least uh, some of the pressure from citizens and consumers is having an effect. Um, So if you look in some of our legislation, our farm bill and how our debates are shaping up, the funds are going towards our green transition. We talked about the Inflation Reduction Act. And at the state level, we are seeing cities and so on push in terms of a green transition in their domestic spaces. So they're encouraging signs. It's not all pessimism on that. But I would just add by saying that as consumers, I always feel it's necessary to reflect that we in the developed world in Europe and the US always have to remember we are the largest source of emissions and the cause of climate change issues. And as much as we like to point the finger at corporate, it is our lifestyle It is our consumption choices as well, our traveling and so on, which contributes to some of these climate change problems. And are we prepared as consumers to make those drastic lifestyle changes that are required for us to have an impact on the 1.5 degree targets? So I think there's a responsibility too on us, not just to lobby for things that we want done, but also reflect on what we should be doing as well as consumers. Thanks very much for that. I I really like that zooming out and this understanding that the developed world has a responsibility and plays a big role in the amount of carbon emissions that are produced. So thank you so much, both of you. Thank you. Thank you so much, Gail. It's been a great conversation and look forward to talking to you again. And that was it for the ninth episode of the Bowl Europe podcast, the podcast of the European Union office of the Heinrich Bull Stiftung in Brussels. This conversation was inspired by the Transatlantic Consumer Dialogue, or TACD, and the Heinrich Bull Stiftung's European Union Conference on US-EU Trade Cooperation. As usual, we invite you to visit our website at eu.bull.org. And that's it for today. Until the next episode, goodbye and take care.